3 is where we will be. First 15 verses. Knowing the times is the title of this sermon. I'm going to simply begin by reading it as we finish up our offerings. Follow along in your copy of God's Word if you would. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Time to be born and a time to die. Time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Time to heal, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. We just prayed, but let's pray one more time asking for the Lord's help as we have read his word. Father, would you take your word and would you write it on our hearts? Would you change us, Father, through the power of your spirit, using the tool of your written word, Father? Father, we have had that experience often in our lives and we're, we are asking and pleading that it would happen again today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, typically I like to start a, a sermon with either a story or an illustration or maybe a question from the text, something just to get our minds going. But today I want to start with a song. Maybe a song that started going through your head as soon as we started reading our text. I won't let it keep going because that would be a, a while. Does anybody, do you know that song? We have a bigger portion of younger people so than we sometimes do on a Sunday morning. So that song, you might not have ever heard it before. 
you know who that song was? Those you're shaking your head. Played it this morning a little bit accidentally, and, and Mike guessed the Beatles. It's not the Beatles, it's the Birds. It's close. The Birds, the Beatles. Birds eat the Beatles. Um, but the song was written by Pete Seeger. Well, six of the words were written by Pete Seeger. Most of them were written long before Seeger was ever alive, long before his time, by the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Those, most of those words come straight from the King James version of these verses that we read. In fact, in, in fact, Seeger knew that he could not take credit for this song. So if you look on Wikipedia, you'll see that 45% of all the proceeds from this song go to an organization in Israel. Um, but you listen to that song, and it's got a happy tune to it. You might assume that the poem of Ecclesiastes is a positive one, celebrating the beauty of the seasons of life. For everything, there is a season. Like the season of the year, our lives have seasons. And if you find yourself in a season you don't like, well, the song says, well, just wait a little bit and turn, 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 and things will look a little bit different in a hopefully better season. It's the kind of song you might turn open, turn on your radio and drive with your windows open on a day like yesterday where you started to feel a bit of anticipation for the fall and drink your pumpkin latte and hope for better days coming up. But is that really the point of this poem? Celebrating the, the beauty of life with all of its changes and all of its experiences. It's what we want it to be. It's what the birds wanted that song to be. That's why they put a happy little melody on it. But you catch a hint of desperation in the last line. We didn't listen to the last line. But the last line of the song, the only line that is actually original to Seeger, except for the turn, 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 the only line that he actually wrote is after giving the last words of the preacher a time for peace, Seeger adds, I swear it's not too late. A time for peace, I swear it's not too late. In other words, turn, turn, turn becomes not a statement, but a desperate plea. Please turn, turn, turn from war to peace. But yet that song was written in the 60s, and there has not been a turning from war since. The changing of seasons is great when it's from weeping to laughing or from losing to finding. But what about when it's reversed? And what about when no matter how hard we try, you cannot turn, turn, turn the seasons of your life? So far in Ecclesiastes, if you've been here in our, our study, you know that we are, we are dealing with a secular mindset. That's what we're being presented in the opening chapters of Ecclesiastes, you know, a humanistic way of viewing the world, a worldview that views the world as under the sun and under the sun only. And when we read this poem with a humanistic worldview, we are left where we've been left every other week in our study of Ecclesiastes, and that is that we are left disappointed. Discovering that life under the sun is vanity. One season quickly fades like the mist that it is and turns into a very different season of life. But there's another way to view this poem with a different worldview and a different perspective. And when we read it with that perspective, we reach a very different conclusion. But before we arrive at that conclusion or any conclusion, let's first begin by looking at this poem. And it's a poem about time, a timely poem. 
29 times the word time is used in these verses that we read. And in the introduction, in verse 1, we see that it is a poem that is seeking to address all of our time. Everything, every season, every matter in the ESV or in the NIV, it's every activity is going to be addressed. This is a poem about all of the times of our lives. And we see that in the very first set of statements where the first and last moments of our life are given, where there is a time to be born and a time to die. Now, in these these series of statements, what we're seeing is a literary technique known as mirrorism. Mirrorism. And mirrorism is a rhetorical term for a pair of contrasting words used to express totality or completeness. Now, that might not make any more sense to you than it did to me when I first read that. But what it's saying is it's giving two words that are being used to represent something much bigger. And let me give you some examples and you'll start to understand. A common example of this is when we say that we have searched high and low for something. Well, when we say that, what we don't mean is that we looked at the highest point and we looked at the lowest point and didn't find it. What we mean is we searched everywhere and we give the extremes to include everything else between them. Another example is in our marriage vows where we use terms like in sickness and in health or for richer or for poorer. We we use those to describe and to 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 pertain to all of life, everything in between. I commit myself to you in everything. So when we see these pairs of words together in Ecclesiastes chapter three, we need to recognize that each pair is representing a bigger picture. So born and die refers to all of our lives. It refers to our birth, to our death, and to everything in between it. And for all of those things, there is a time. From that broad starting point, he begins to point out the things that make up our lives. Now, our kids, most of them now, are are at a stage where they're really into Legos. And and as I looked at this poem, I, I saw each one of these statements as a different Lego brick. Individually, they might not look like much, but when you begin to stack and to piece them together, they create a picture of our lives. In an agricultural society, the most obvious place to start when talking about seasons of life are the next set of statements, and that is the season of planting and harvesting. There's a time to plant, and there's a time to harvest, or there's a time to pluck up what is planted. And we're just going to work through these, looking at how they embrace and how they point to all the aspects of our life. The next two pairs we can lump together to describe the the constructive and destructive activities of our human lives. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to break down and there's a time to build up. Now, we should note that what this poem is doing is simply pointing out the things that are making up our lives. It's it's not necessarily condoning them or suggesting all of these ideas. It's the it's describing what happens in our life, not necessarily prescribing. So so don't if you have anger towards someone and you you hear this part of the sermon, think, well, pastor said it's time to go kill, so I can leave here and and find that time. That's not what he's saying, but he's he's giving us a picture of all of the things that make up our lives. There are seasons when of our life when things are are breaking down, when there's death. And there are seasons when things are being built up. There's seasons of construction. And then there's seasons where it feels a whole lot like destruction. Next, he turns to our emotions. And he begins first with our private emotions. He says, there's a time to weep. 
But there's also a time to laugh. But but then he goes from private emotions to public emotions. There's a time to mourn and a time there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. These things happen in our lives. There's time when we are dancing or we're laughing at a wedding. But there's times when we're weeping and mourning at their funeral. We view the next pair as falling under the same category or under the category of friendship and enmity. Friendship and enmity. There's times where our lives are marked by friendship and relationships. There's, there's times where our lives are marked by enmity. First, on a private, per, or on a private personal level and on a national political level. First, on the national political level, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Now, now that might not make much sense to us. But in the book of 2 Kings, Elisha tells the king of Israel that that once they defeat their Moabite enemies, what they should do is that they, they should feel, they should fill their fields with rocks. Fill their fields with rocks so that it would no longer be tillable. And that way you can cripple your enemies long after the war is over. So this is a time of, of national enmity. But there's also a time where you don't fill a field with rocks, but you clear away the rocks so that the, the so that the the the, enemy, the the neighboring kings can march in on a highway that has been cleared of stones. Isaiah sixty two ten. Friendship and enmity on a political level. Someday there there might there will be again friendship on a political level. I don't know if it will happen in our lifetime in this world, but but there are times where we see friendship and en- friendship on a political level. But we also see friendship and and enmity in on a personal level. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, and this reminds us that God knew 2020 was coming, because we know that this is a time not to embrace and. Don't send me any hateful emails about not hugging or anything like that. But there's a time to embrace. There's, there's times when, when a relationship where we once freely embrace that other person, it's not there anymore. We, we don't embrace them like we used to embrace. There's times he, he moves from our emotions to our possessions. There's a time to seek. And a time to lose, or as the New American Standard puts it, a time to search and a time to give up is lost. You spend hours and hours searching for something, but there comes a moment, there comes a moment in time where you, you just give up the search. And depending on what it is that you are looking for, that can be a tragic moment. To realize that something will not be found. That the time of finding that thing is no longer here. It's, it's now a time that it's lost. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away. Or if I was translating this, there's a time to store away for the next generation or the, the next child. They, they can fit in these clothes when they get older. Or there, there's a time to have a garage sale. There's a time when you're bringing something in your cart home and it's brand new from the store. And then there's a time when that same item is on the folding table at the yard sale. It's a time to tear and a time to sow. Most likely this refers to times of grief. Tearing or, or ripping. We're familiar with this in particularly the Old Testament. Of, of ripping your garments. Either in mourning or in repentance. Grief due to death or, or grief due to our sin being discovered. Or our sin being exposed. Or us realizing our sins. There's time to tear our garments. 
But then there's a time when the mourning is over and there's, there's a time when those garments should be mended. Now, you're not allowed to nudge the person next to you on this one, implying that they need to realize that they need to turn, turn, turn from one to the other. But there is a time to keep silent and there's a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate. And finally, there's a time for war and a time for peace. Just read a book about Winston Churchill during or a book about Winston Churchill, and he did everything he could to convince the American president, FDR, to join the British in the army or in the war against Germany. And President Roosevelt was convinced that this was a time for peace until Pearl Harbor happened. And then it wasn't. It was a time for peace until it was a time for war. And that points us to the problem that this poem is addressing. And that is not only are our lives made up of these different times and events, but often we are not the ones in control of when those events take place. We don't control the timing of our birth or our death. We might be in control of whether we weep or not, but our weeping is in response to something that is outside of our control. And not only is this poem about all the different times of our life, but it is also about the timing of those times. The word time that is used doesn't just mean a block of minutes or hours, but it refers to a specific time. The word means a suitable moment. There is a suitable moment for each of these things. That's why the Living Bible translates verse 1 as there is a right time for everything. The New American Standard says there's an appointed time for everything. And I read some sermons where where they talked about how we need to know what time it is and we need to know how to do the right thing at the right time. But I think this is giving us a different perspective and it's giving us, causing us to ask the question, who is the one appointing this time? Who gets to decide when the right time is for everything? Now, if you live with a secular mindset, with the mindset that we've seen so far in Ecclesiastes, a mindset of under the sun, then the answer is no one. No one is deciding when these things happen. They just do. The atheist Richard Dawkins in his book, A River Out of Eden, a Darwinian worldview. So viewing the world in this under the world mindset where there's no creator, there's no design. It's it's we all just evolved out of nothing. He tells us where this worldview leads us as we look at all the times. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. You will not find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Richard Dawkins is saying the same thing, that the preacher is is leading us to see what, what happens when you remove God from your worldview. You end up with no design, but no purpose. No evil, no good, just indifference. If you embrace a worldview without God, you end up with a meaningless world. And as far as how we live and how we move through these different times, Dawkins says, because we weren't created by a creator with a purpose for our lives, all we are as humans is just a bunch of DNA. And as far as DNA goes, DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. 
DNA does not care about why things happen the way they happen. It just is. So if it's a time to dance, we'll go ahead and dance. If it's a time to laugh, laugh. And if it's a time to weep, go ahead and weep. Stop trying to figure it all out. It's all meaningless. There's nothing out there. This is what the preacher says in verses 9 and 10. He repeats some of the things we've heard him say throughout the first chapters of this book. First, he asks the familiar question after going through this poem. He asks the question, what gain has the worker from his toil? Now remember what these words mean. We're building on where we've been so far in Ecclesiastes. We looked at toil last week and we saw that toil doesn't just mean our jobs. It doesn't just mean the way we make a living, but it also includes the ordinary day-to-day tasks of our life. In other words, all those pieces of time that are found in that poem. What do we gain from all that? And that word gain, it means a profit. It's a it's a word from the, the banking world. It's an accounting term. What's left over? What do we have after all the bills have been paid and all the expenses taken care of? What profit is there? If we go back and look over the 28 blocks of time from a numbers perspective, we see that the answer is that there's no gain. Because what we have in those verses is 14 positives alongside of the 14 negatives. For every birth, there is a death. For every planting, there is a tilling under. For every laugh, there is a cry. For every tearing, there is a sowing. And like any good mathematician, or even honestly not so good a mathematician, we know, no matter how big the number is, when you add its negative to it, you end up with zero. Fourteen positives plus their fourteen negatives equal one big fat zero. Chapter one of Ecclesiastes, we looked at the endless cycle of nature and said, what does it all amount to? The wind, the water, the the sun. What does it accomplish? What does it gain? And the, the answer was that it gains nothing. The wind blows around and around and around, but it gets nowhere. The sun sets only to rise again. The rivers empty into the ocean, but it never fills them. Again, we're looking at this from a, a, a secular humanistic worldview. All of this activity, we saw Michael Eaton's quote or summary of this, though a hub of of activity, it is devoid of progress. Now, in chapter three, we turn from nature to our lives and with an under the sun mindset, what do we see? A hubbub of activity, but ultimately devoid of progress. And then he gives us the first conclusion that we can reach after reading this poem. And that is that life is a burden. Verse 10, if you have the NIV, says, I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. The ESV says, I have seen the business. And that reminds us of chapter 1 and verse 13, where he described that business as an unhappy business. Now, he doesn't say that here in chapter 3, but he supposes or expects us to remember that. It's implied in this. And ever since verse 13 of chapter 1, he has been proving that statement. Of what happens, how, how we, what, what the business of man is if you take God out of the picture. And he says it's an unhappy, burdensome business. And it's an unhappy business because it's a frustrating business. It's a frustrating business. You remember when Adam and Eve decided they were going to live their lives without God, they were going to do and they were going to decide what is right and wrong and they, They said, God, we're going to make up our own rules. Their work 
and their lives became that of frustration, tilling the soil, but working hard as the sweat of their brow producing thorns. Taking God out of the picture of our lives, it leads us to see our lives as frustration. Frustration. That's the first conclusion. If we're putting a heading on it, the first conclusion we arrive at in our poem is that of an eternal frustration. An eternal frustration. In verse 11, the preacher says some of the words that are probably the most well-known words of Ecclesiastes. The problem is we, we usually only read the first half of this verse. Verse 11, the first statement says, he, he, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, that word beautiful doesn't mean pretty. It doesn't mean attractive, but it means appropriate. He has made everything appropriate in his time. Second great statement taken by itself. The second sentence we also take by itself is that he has also put eternity into the hearts of man. Have you seen those statements on, on coffee mugs or on plaques on a wall? God has made everything beautiful in its time. And then there's a coffee mug that says he has put eternity into the hearts of man. And each of them a great, positive, encouraging statement when you take them by themselves. But that's not what they're actually here for. You see, the second line that's on the screen doesn't actually go with the first sentence of verse 11. But it goes with what follows it. If you notice in your English Bibles, there's a period after the word also, but there's a comma after the word heart. And the phrase that goes with that second line is this, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Hear what he's saying in verse 11. Listen, hear, hear what he's saying. Explains all the frustration that we've sensed in the first three chapters so far of Ecclesiastes, but it also explains all of the frustration we see in a world that is trying to live without God. Let me go back to the illustration of Legos for us to understand what he's saying. In our house, George is our Lego master. And as he's gotten older, the, the Lego sets he's gotten have become more and more complicated with, with more and more steps. And when he started with, with Legos, we'd have an instruction manual, about 10 or 15 pages with maybe 30 or 40 steps, and we'd finish it in a few minutes. But now the, some of the sets that he brings home now, or we get him now for Christmas or birthdays, it comes with multiple manuals, and each one containing hundreds of steps to build just a part of the complete set that's shown on the box. And, and as we start to put the set together, what we often do is, is we, because George is very organized and very detailed about the way we do this, we, we dump out the bag that has the, the, the one portion of Legos in it, and we grab that first set of instructions. And we turn to step one, and we, we begin to put together the pieces in that step. And then we go to step two and step three and so on until we're finished with that portion of the project. But as we do that, do you know what else we do? We, we, we keep the box with the finished picture in front of us. Because sometimes as the steps, particularly me, I'll admit, Legos drive me crazy. I'm not, I can't get into the details like that. But because, but because as the steps get more and more complicated, sometimes we and me get more and more frustrated. Frustrated with fitting this little piece with that little piece in. And after all, we say, what is this that I'm even putting together? It does not look like anything. 
But then we look at the box and we and we see the finished picture and we we see what we're working towards. And, and usually we can see the specific part of that puzzle, that that finished picture that we're working on at that moment. And when we're frustrated, we will notice and we'll point out how cool is this? Look, this little thing that we're working on here, it's going to turn into this that is going to allow these gears to turn that and it's going to allow the finished product to do this. And we look back down at our pieces and that we're working on with a new level of excitement and determination. But here's the frustration that verse 11 is pointing out to us. And that is that we cannot see the box. We cannot see the full picture. We can't see our lives from beginning to end the way that God does. We know that there is a beginning and we know that there is an end. We know that there is a complete picture. Uh, We're even okay with admitting that what we're going through right now is, is somehow working towards that completed picture. But we cannot see it. And we can't see how this piece fits with those pieces. And we can't see why we have to have this piece in the first place. All we can see is this little Lego block of time that we're currently in. God has stamped eternity on our hearts. Yes, but we cannot see the end from the beginning. I like the way the complete Jewish Bible puts it. It says, he has made everything suited to its time. Also, he has given human beings an awareness of eternity, but in such a way that they can't fully comprehend from beginning to end the things that God does. Whereas the message paraphrase puts it, true, God has made everything beautiful in its time, beautiful in itself and in its time, but he's left us in the dark. So we can never know what God is up to. Again, we're, we're seeing a secular humanistic worldview. Does anyone ever feel like that? True, God made everything beautiful in its time, but he's left me in the dark. We've all been there and it leads to frustration. But it does not have to. There's another option. And it's what we need most when we feel that, when we feel that anxiety and uncertainty over the turn, turn, turning of our world and over the changing seasons of our life. What we need most in the midst of all of our times is that we need peace. And that's what we see in the last part of this passage, a peace, a knowledge that brings us peace in all of our times. If you go back to the beginning of this poem, you may notice that the preacher says something that sounds familiar to us, but then we stop and look and he says something different than we expected. He says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter. And if we're we're following along in Ecclesiastes, what we expect him to say next is what? Under the sun. But what does he say? He Instead of saying under the sun, he says under Heaven. Now that might not seem like a big change, but heaven here does not simply mean the sky and the stars and the place where the sun resides. But heaven in the Old Testament refers to the dwelling place of God. And here the, 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 the preacher puts God into the picture. And now when we read this poem with God in the picture, we get a very different statement. And the preacher says at the end of this section, he says, because I view this world with under God, Here's what I know. Here's what I know. And in the midst of our changing seasons of our life, it is really important. It's vital that we know what we know. That we know some unchanging truths. I'm actually going to start with the second know that he gives us in verse 14. And then we'll come back to the to the first one. 
In verse 14 and 15, he says, I know this. I perceived in the ESV, but it's I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. He says that if you want peace in the midst of the changing seasons of your life, you need to keep your eyes fixed on the unchanging God. Because while your plans and while your events in life may change, his purposes for your life and his purposes in your life and through your life do not change. Notice what he says about the things that God does. He goes through all the things that we do and say they fleet, they change from one thing to the other. But here's what happens with the things that God does. First of all, he says that what God does is permanent. What God does is permanent. It endures forever. It does not turn, 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 but it lasts. Second of all, what he says is that what God does is complete and perfect. Nothing can be added to it because nothing needs to be added to it. And third, he says, what God does is secure. Nothing can be taken away from it. What God does is permanent. What God does is complete. What God does is secure. Compare that with all we saw in chapter 2 of what we do is fleeting. God's work is permanent, complete, and secure. And here's why this is important for us to know. Because in the midst of all the times of our lives, God is at work. He is at work in the in your life to bring about his purposes. And Romans 8:28 tells us that his purpose is for our good and for his glory. This is what God is doing in our lives. Our times may turn turn turn, but God's plan is moving forward to its destination. Not only in our life, not only in your individual life, but in this world, in the chaos and the confusion of this world, God's plans are not being tossed around like a boat on a rough sea. Isaiah 46 says this, remember this, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. He's already declared the end at the from the beginning from ancient times, what from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. His work in our lives and in this world is not turn, turn, turning with the seasons, but it is moving towards the end for which he purposed it. And notice the second thing he says in these verses about what we can do in the midst of the changing times of our lives. And that is that he says that we can worship. And actually says that the changing seasons in our life happen so that we will worship. God has done this so that we will fear him. In our weaknesses, in our frailty, in, in our confusion, it leads us and draws us to see the greatness and the wonder of God. God brings every season into our lives, not to push us away from him, but to draw us closer to him. Every time of your life, God takes that time not to push you away from him, but to draw you closer to him. I've said this quote often, and I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon, and that is that I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me 
against the rock of ages. Now that's a great statement to put on a wall and a great statement to know, but that is a, that is a hard lesson to learn. I have learned to be thankful for anything that brings me closer to Jesus. Paul says something similar in the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians. Where he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I'm writing this so that you know this. You need to know this. That I went through affliction in Asia. In fact, the affliction was so great that I was utterly burdened beyond my strength that I despaired of life itself. This is a time of death. This is a time of breaking down. This is a time of loss. But he says, notice what God did in this time. We felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. In this time of death, I discovered what I would never discover in a time of life, and that is that God is completely trustworthy. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and I know another time is coming. I know another difficult time is coming, but in this time I have learned and I have been prepared So that in that time, I will trust him. He is my hope. The times of loss and difficulty and hardships, they have taught me that God is absolutely trustworthy. And then the last phrase of verse 15 is a confusing one. And I'm not going to go through it all, but just focus on that word seek. I think that word seek describes the rest of the verse because what is it's reminding us of what it is reminding us of is what verse 11 tells us and that is that though we cannot see the end from the beginning though you cannot see the end from the beginning of your life god does and he sees the end from the beginning we we look at nature and we see the sea emptying we see the streams emptying the ocean the ocean never filling we see the sun rising then quickly setting and racing around to rise again and we we think all of this is just going in motion it's just completely unobservable to God, and we think our lives are like that. But Solomon says, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, God sees it all. Nothing goes unwatched. Nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing escapes his watchful eye. No moment, no times of your life will be wasted. He takes every time of our lives and he builds it into a completed masterpiece. You know, sometimes I go into my boy's room. They're usually pretty good about this because I know they'll give me a hard time this afternoon if I throw them under the bus. But they have a Lego table where they have all these masterpiece Legos put together. And they got, George got them all set up and they're, some of them are really impressive. There's times I go, I go in there and, and I look on the floor and there's just Legos dumped everywhere. You know, sometimes we, we, we feel like our lives are like that. We feel like our lives are just pieces all over the floor. And we look at it and say, what in the world is going on? We may look over at other lives and think, what a masterpiece. But you know, if George were to walk in that room, he would probably be able to tell me what each piece belongs to. And he would be able to put those pieces together to form the car or the, or the, the bank or whatever he has. And that's how God is. God looks at the pieces of our lives and he knows how each piece fits together to build the picture of your life that he has designed it to look like. Now you say, well, how can that be true? You don't, you don't know the ugly time 
that I am in right now. You don't know the loss. You don't know the grief. You don't know the trial. You don't know the way that I have just made a mess of my life. And you might be right. I, I, I don't know. And I don't know why. If you want, I don't know the why. I don't know the how. But here's what I do know. And that is that he does. God does. And the God who knows is the same God who took every moment we talked about in Sunday school this morning, took every moment of Joseph's life and turned it for good. He's the God of Daniel, the God, the Daniel, who at moments he was in the lion's den and other times he was lifted to the heights of heaven and saw the ancient of days. He's the God of David, who at times was called a man after God's own heart. And at other times he was called out for being the man who committed murder and adultery. And yet through him, we have the human author, most think of this book, Solomon. And, and, and through even that adulterous affair, there was death, there was destruction. But we can trace the lineage of Jesus back through that mess. But ultimately, you know how I know that God is able to redeem and use all of our times. And that is because he is the God who in Galatians 4 said, when the fullness of time, or other translations say, at the right time. At a moment in time, God sent forth his son. And he came into one of those blocks of time, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. This is why. So that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so we are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And remember what we said about God's work in our life. It accomplishes what it was meant to accomplish. So knowing that, what do we do? That's the, that's the first no. Now what is the second no? Knowing that, how do we live our lives in the midst of all the times of our lives? Verses 12 and 13, it almost just sounds too simple and too basic. But he says, I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Knowing what we know in the midst of all of our times, we can have peace. And we can say with the psalmist, joyfully, my times are in your hands. Now, that's true no matter what. All of our times are in our hands, whether we want to admit it or not. But we are free to let go and say, God, my times are in your hands. I might not understand what you are doing right now, but I trust you. Our times are in God's hands. And more importantly, in all of our times, we are in God's hands and he can be trusted. And when we do, when we trust him, we can have joy at all times. We can be thankful at all times and we can be at peace at all times because we know that our times are in his hands. You know, we have a slide at the back of our house and Ethan's just at the stage where he's starting to learn to go down it. But if you watch him, it's kind of funny to watch him go down because he'll get to the top and he's not quite certain about what the experience is going to be. So, so he'll go, and as he starts to go down, he'll push his feet against the side of the slide to try to slow his descent. And it's very noisy, very squeaky, and sometimes he'll kind of stop halfway through. 
You know, there's a lot of times of my life I'm a little bit like that. I'm pushing, trying to do everything I can to fight and resist what God is doing in my life at this time. And I want to be more like my big kids in, in, in our life because they've been down that slide a lot of times and they, they know what to experience. So when they get on the top, they jump on and they go down. And that's what, that's just a picture for me of how I want to live my life in all my time. Not to trivialize, trivialize them because there's hard times, but to know and go through them knowing that we can trust God in the midst of every time that he brings us to. Let me invite the worship team to come forward. We will close with a song. I know we're after 12, but as they do, let's, let's pray. God, we want to trust you more and more. And Father, we, we want to believe and to know that you bring everything in our life to draw us closer to you. And at times we have a hard time seeing that. At times we never get an answer to the question of why. We, we can look back and we, we don't understand why, but we, we know that one day we will. So, Father, help us as we go through the times and the seasons of our life to know that we are doing it under your care and under your watchful eye and that you are accomplishing for our good and your glory, your purposes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing, Tis so 